I'm Catherine Schley. Currently, I am a plant operations manager. This is my 16th year with the company. I'm Sean Schley. I'm currently the manufacturing strategy manager for the heavy duty business in environmental technologies. Been with Corning just about 14 years. We take full advantage of 7 a.m. to 6 p.m. We're typically the first people there, the last people to pick up. We take full advantage of that time. We rock, paper, scissors on who's going to leave at 545 to be able to get there in time to pick them up. <laughs> Sometimes. Yeah, that's definitely happened. I always remember every day that you pick her up, you know, some activity happened. I think maybe an example I have is I think our daughter became more fluent in Mandarin before speaking English at the center. We're like, hey, you're going to have to teach the parents because I don't know what she's saying to me. <laughs> Welcome to Where's My Village, Fortune's podcast about the child care crisis in America and stories of people who are trying to fix it. I'm Maria Aspen, a senior writer at Fortune. You just heard Catherine and Sean Schley talking about the child care center their son and daughter both attended. It's a center funded almost entirely by their employer, Corning, Inc. Where is Corning? Some may say a town in upstate New York. Population, 10,709. And they wouldn't be wrong. But that's not the only place Corning is. Because Corning is a company that changes entire industries with its technology by partnering to create innovations that would turn the heads of sci-fi writers. Corning Inc. is a technology and manufacturing company. It makes glass and ceramics for things we all need, especially in the last few years, like vaccine vials and iPhone screens. It's a big business in a small town in upstate New York, and the town is also called Corning. With more than $14 billion in annual revenue, the company is number 263 on the Fortune 500 list of America's largest companies. And for decades, Corning has been spending money on something big companies often don't. It invests about $2.5 million a year in childcare, most of which goes towards supporting two childcare centers in the town of Corning and subsidizing fees for parents who are employees, like the Schlees. Chris Sharkey is the company's president of community engagement. Our engagement in childcare actually dates back to the early 80s when Corning recognized that in order to attract women to the workforce, it needed to provide quality, affordable childcare. And we were really one of the front runners at that time. And now here, almost, you know, 40 years later, we are still actively engaged in funding centers. So we are invested both in personnel time uh, in this issue, but also financially. I've been covering women in business for most of my career as a journalist. And at Fortune, where I spent much of last year reporting on the women's employment crisis, seemingly every interview came back to caretaking and all the unpaid labor that still primarily falls on women. I heard the same thing over and over again. The pandemic didn't create the childcare crisis, but it laid bare just how inadequate our current patchwork of childcare options is for parents, and especially for women. Employer-supported childcare, for those women who even had that as an option, was always just one inconsistent piece of the puzzle. And it could mean a lot of different things. 
Historically, if companies did offer childcare benefits, they included subsidies or flexible spending accounts or reserving spots at local centers. Or employers might partner with big childcare providers like Bright Horizons or Kindercare, or a platform like Care.com. Some employers also offered backup care if your regular daycare had a day off and you needed to hire a sitter or find a temporary spot in a local center. Then the pandemic started. While employers were sending workers home or asking essential employees to keep showing up, many senior executives realized they had to spend a lot more time thinking about the childcare benefits they offered to their employees. News from Target, the company's expanding benefits for more than 350,000 full and part-time employees. Target will give workers 20 days of backup child care or elder care through a partner network. $7,500 a year. Right now, about 30 employees are tapping into it. Lilia says Dr. Bronner's has paid out more than $117,000 this year, up from $67,000 in 2020. Okay, Starbucks is offering employees new family care benefits. Today, the company announced workers will get 10 subsidized backup care days for their kids or elders. Hundreds of companies across the country are now offering additional child care benefits since the pandemic. And that's pretty surprising given how hard businesses were hit in recent months. But the reality of it is the parents we spoke to say this trend may actually be less of a perk and more of a requirement. The pandemic may have spurred something of an existential crisis for employers, but access to reliable childcare has always had a direct effect on women's ability to work. According to a 2016 Center for American Progress study of 12 million American families, 89% of moms with access to reliable childcare were able to work. That number fell to 77% when care was hard to find. Meanwhile, Finding childcare had virtually no effect on the likelihood that fathers were employed. This imbalance only grew during the pandemic. When schools and daycares closed, it was often women who wound up canceling shifts or balancing kids on laps during Zoom calls. And because it was so difficult for women to work, many of them didn't. About two million women left the workforce in 2020. This tide of workers leaving their jobs did not subside once vaccines became available and the world opened up again. About 43 million people quit their jobs in 2021, and women left the workforce at twice the rate of men during this time. This period is often referred to as the Great Resignation. But given what we know now about what led to this moment, maybe resignation is the wrong label. People have been framing this moment as the great resignation, which I think has a bad connotation in terms of workers and making it seem as though people are just marching off (laughs) of jobs as opposed to renegotiating work. What does work look like? It's the great renegotiation. C. Nicole Mason is the president and CEO of the Institute for Women's Policy Research. She noted that this mass exodus of women from the workforce was not a surprise. Most workplaces are simply not designed for women. The truth of the matter is that we still operate in this very male-centered workplace model, very Mm -hmm. mad men, and it's assumed that women are stay-at-home moms, don't work, 
and are not the primary breadwinner in their families. And that's just not our reality. And it hasn't been our reality for a long time. Women are 50% of the workforce, considering that men run most of the Fortune 500 companies and you know women make up a small number of corporate leaders. They actually are holding all the cards in terms of changing policies, instituting policies and practice that support working women and moms. A 2022 study done by the Marshall Plan for Moms found that only 16% of salaried women and 6% of hourly wage workers received any sort of childcare subsidy from their employer. And only roughly a third of all workers said they had hours flexible enough to meet the needs of their families. Since the pandemic, fewer women seem willing to accept this abysmal status quo. The same survey found 69% of moms said they wouldn't even take a new job if it didn't include childcare benefits. And 83% said the quality of childcare benefits impacts whether or not they want to stay at their current company. So, what does this mean for companies? Here's C. Nicole Mason again. Sometimes it involves shifting an entire workplace culture. If you've been operating in a very male-centered model of work, meaning like you're available around the clock, you can travel at the drop of a dime, you know, you're expected to travel to meet with clients. And so if that is your model, you're going to have to do a lot of work to shift that model to accommodate all of your workers. And helping employers figure out how to make that shift can also be a good business opportunity. Picture a world where our best employees go on leave and feel excited to come back. And having the resources in place to actually support them. Imagine if healthcare was built specifically for you. Just imagine how extraordinary that world would be. You don't have to imagine. Maven is building healthcare for you. Maven Clinic is a virtual provider of women's and family health services. But Maven also works directly with employers to craft benefits packages for workers who have or want to start families. Working with Fortune 500 companies like Microsoft and L'Oreal, Maven's enterprise business has grown 400% since the start of the pandemic. Kate Ryder is Maven's founder and CEO. The whole family is broken and there's a caregiving crisis at hand and there's a great resignation happening in the workforce. And so this is one of our most important issues that we're trying to solve now to retain talent. And I also think we're just living through a time in America where employers are being asked to step up in ways that they were never asked to in the past to support all these benefits that in other societies, they, you know, the, the federal government might support. That's a business problem that an employer has to solve for. While the benefits packages Kate and her team build are individual to each of their clients, she has a general set of recommendations for employers. And just a note here, the stats she cites are from a survey Maven did in partnership with Great Place to Work. What we found is that companies can prevent four out of five working parents from quitting by by kind of taking this holistic approach to employee well-being and really zeroing in on like what do parents need, childcare being a huge component of that. And we also found that of the list of companies with best workplaces, that 75% are providing support for fertility and family building benefits. You know, 65% offer adoption support, 44% subsidized childcare expenses. 
As schools grapple with reopening plans and daycares shut their doors and keep them shut, parents are left to figure out how to do their jobs with their kids literally underfoot. Bank of America says it has a plan to help its employees. Bank of America is one of the biggest companies and biggest employers in the United States. With almost $94 billion in revenues last year, it's number 36 on the Fortune 500. It's also made a big commitment to supporting parents. Company offerings range from a daycare referral service to college prep programs. And much of this was in place pre-COVID. Bank of America's more than 200,000 employees include corporate workers, who were able to ride out the first years of the pandemic remotely, and frontline bank clerks, who had to show up in person. So given the size and diversity of its workforce, we were interested in hearing how B of A rethought benefits that worked for everyone. The company expanded its childcare offerings during the pandemic, including additional backup care days, and at the height of the pandemic, up to $100 in daily care reimbursements. As the pandemic has subsided, B of A has decided to make some of these changes permanent. Anne Oxrider is a benefits executive at Bank of America. We had previously offered 40 days, up to 40 days for a child and up to 40 days for an adult. And we've expanded that to 50 and see that as a real benefit, allowing me to feel confident that whatever happens during, if a caregiver goes on vacation, if a child care center closes, if there's a school holiday, I actually have an opportunity as a parent to ensure that I can actually get good quality care for my child. As of April, Bank of America's benefits package includes those 50 backup care days and up to $275 a month in child care subsidies for employees making up to $100,000 a year. And it is for both formal and informal care. I can actually reimburse someone who may be caring for my child later in the evening, earlier in the morning, in a non-traditional setting, because it's not a nine-to-five daycare setting. It could be a different type of home daycare setting or a different arrangement that I may have. So that really is an important part of ensuring that we're giving equal access to that benefit to our eligible teammates. Bank of America committed more than $450 million to child care from March 2020 through June 2021. Those benefits were used by more than 23,000 U.S. employees. Ann Oxrider says this type of investment is essential for the company to remain competitive in the job market. I would be hard-pressed to want to work for a company that wouldn't recognize and acknowledge all the other things that are happening in your life, like being a parent, like trying to navigate raising children, like trying to figure out how to get them to launch into their next opportunity and career. So our strategy is we believe that investing in these kinds of benefits, the overall physical, financial, and emotional wellness of teammates makes us a great place to work. It's compelling because when we're a great place to work, we all will succeed. I've had a lot of similar conversations with executives at some of the country's biggest companies since the pandemic started. And with the power that they have as employers, it's great to hear big businesses acknowledge how important childcare is. Some of these companies, as Chris Sharkey mentioned at the top of the episode, have been thinking about this for a really long time. In the patchwork of childcare options that parents have to cobble together, employment-based care is an imperfect but crucial piece. In this episode of Where's My Village, we will dig deeper into how Corning, as well as a union supporting healthcare workers, have built part of this village. 
So the difference between what it costs to take care of an infant and what even the wealthiest parent can afford to pay, there's about a 30% gap in there. That's us. We make it so that we can have the highest quality of care. It's the closest thing to what you would call affordability. Fred R. Curry is the manager of community development at Corning, Inc. The us he is referring to here is Corning. The company funds five childcare centers that serve Corning employees and the Corning community at large. The five centers currently provide care to about 500 children, with plans to open a new center for infants to age three in the next few years. We make direct payments to childcare centers so as to avoid the issue of income to our employees. So we don't make per employee investments, which most when employers think childcare benefit, most of them think that. We go directly to the childcare center. We are underwriting the true cost of care. The amount Corning employees pay to send their kids to the company's childcare centers varies based on income and family size. Underwriting this care hasn't come cheap. Here again is Chris Sharkey, Corning's president of community engagement. These initiatives over time were probably close to $75 million in investment for, for child care. But again, you know, this is to support employees. This is to recognize um, that our employees have families and those families are important to them. And therefore, those families are important to us. The centers are also open to the entire Corning community a city of about 11,000 people where roughly a quarter of households include kids under age 18. The centers that we fund are open to everyone in the community, and that comes from a fundamental principle that we want our employees' children to be part of the same community they're going to be in when they go to school, when they become members of the community. All the centers are run by independent nonprofit organizations. We're really good at making and selling glass. We're not really good at early childhood. So we hire the experts for that. Paula Detar is the director of one of the Corning-funded centers that cares for kids ages 0 to 5. Since I've been here, I mean, there, there are so many ways they support us. They really are our partners and partners in a very close relationship. It's not like they're distant and, and they sit up on a hill, right? They are the folks that check in. You know, when we went through COVID, they were calling us, what do you need? Funding still came through, whether we were open, closed, they were there. And then, I mean, obviously financially, that's a huge piece. They, they provide a lot of financial support, which helps keep the tuition low for our families, helps us to provide staff. Our staff are paid above minimum wage to start here. When the pandemic began, Sharkey and her team had to rethink how the centers could best support Corning's employees and the entire community. This was done out of care for kids, of course, but also out of necessity. Chris Sharkey again. I mean, we are a manufacturing company, and it's a little hard to work on a manufacturing line from home. So we had a lot of essential employees, some making vials that were being used for vaccines that had to be at work. And that created really difficult challenges for a lot of our employees. So they were really stuck. 
What we did is we took one of our vacant learning center buildings, brought in one of the nonprofits that we work with to supervise a program that was a virtual learning support center. So parents could actually drop their children at this center where they would be supervised, safety protocols adhered to, they would be given lunch, and the parents could go to work knowing that their children were safe. Corning employees Sean and Catherine Schley took full advantage of the learning centers. Safety was never a concern. We were essential workers working in a manufacturing facility, making environmental technology products. So therefore, the Children's Center was open. Catherine Schley added that the Corning Centers provided a much more consistent experience for their son Maddox, then four years old, compared to what the local public school was able to provide for their older daughter, Kerrigan. And I do remember thinking at one point that I had wished Kerrigan wasn't in school age at that time, that she was still at the center. And it would have made it even more simpler for us um, not to have to worry about schools closing and remote learning and figuring out what we were doing with her. But Maddox always had a place to go. Catherine emphasized that having Maddox and Kerrigan in the Corning Centers at different points in their childhood made her a more confident mom and a more focused employee. For me, it's one less thing to worry about or stress about. My my job is stressful enough, <laughs> but besides having to worry about um, where our children are during the day or are we going to have childcare tomorrow or next week, So for me, it's just one less thing I have to think about on a daily basis, which makes me able to perform at a higher level at work because I'm not having to worry about that. And it's not kind of in the back of my head throughout the day of what's happening with my children. Catherine and Sean could probably relate to the 83% of people in the Marshall Plan for Moms study we referenced at the beginning of this episode the ones who considered access to childcare benefits one of the main determinants of whether or not they'd stay at their current job. We did at one point have an opportunity to start looking outside of the Valley for a position. And that was the first thing that we thought about in potentially relocating was schools and childcare. Where would the kids end up going to school, which school district, and where would we have after-school programs, daycare, for Maddox. And that that was number one in, are we going to want to relocate to this location based on, is there something available? We interviewed Catherine and Sean in April. Their son Maddox graduated from the center in June and started kindergarten in the fall, meaning the Schlees no longer needed the Corning Child Care Centers. So in July, Catherine and Sean moved to West Virginia to work at another Corning plant. So it seems like they meant it when they said Corning's childcare offerings played a big role in their employment decisions. The Schlees are just one of millions of American families who are making career choices based on their childcare options. The difference between them and many people we've talked to for this podcast is that the Schlees had an option they really liked, one they utilized for as long as they possibly could. And they are committed to Corning in part because of it. Chris Sharkey sees this moment in childcare as both an opportunity and a challenge for employers. Our baby boomers are starting to retire. We're filling those openings with younger folks who are starting out their careers and starting families. So we know that the demand for childcare 
in the next five years is going to increase and not decrease. And the challenge in this environment is how do we build capacity, not only as Corning, but in every place in the U.S. is facing the same dynamic. We saw during the pandemic that there were parents that made some decisions about what was most important to them. And it, it was the health and well-being of their children. And our goal as an employer is not to have employees have to make that really difficult choice of I can have one or the other. We want them to be able to fill both those needs in their life. So I'm a financial reporter by training. I go back to the numbers. And that $2.5 million a year that Corning spends on childcare, it's a lot of money, but it's not that much for a big public company like Corning, which made $1.9 billion in profit last year. We're talking 0.1% of profits spent on childcare. It would be really interesting to see what other big companies who make even more money could do if they really wanted to invest in their employees. Chris Sharkey was realistic that not every company will have the resources or the will to fund childcare in the way Corning does. But she does believe that every company can do something. We know there aren't going to be many companies that are going to jump in the way we have and build centers and fund programs that are open to everyone in the community. But there certainly are other ways that companies can invest in a smaller way that can make a difference. I mean, there's nothing worse than having somebody who you really want to hire, who really wants to come to work for you, who says, I can't because, you know, I can't find a place for someone to take care of my child. Fred R. Curry put an even finer point on why employers should invest in childcare. You really can do this a million different ways, and you really have to do it. Because but for employers, there would be no need for childcare. It's not like childcare exists for its own good. It exists because we need people to work. And if you're really serious about it, then you have to be willing to provide it as a support. So my name is Efua. I was born and raised in Ghana. I moved here with my family when I was about 11, 12 years old. I'm a pharmacist. I am married. I have two children, a son and a daughter, who both attend the 1199 FALC Center. Efua Gansa is a member of New York City's 1199 SEIU, United Healthcare Workers, a union founded in 1932 by Leon Davis and a group of New York City pharmacy workers. Here, in the richest city in the richest country in the world, they made the hospitals run. Every day their work made it possible for New York's hospitals to treat, to care, and to heal. Cooks, orderlies, cleaning staff, frontline caregivers, on different floors, in different divisions, in different parts of the city. Today, the union's 450,000 members live throughout the tri-state area and include frontline workers from hospitals, pharmacies, nursing homes, and home care settings including well-known employers like Montefiore and NYU Langone. The Falk Center Efua is referring to is the Future of America Learning Center in the Bronx, 
It's a decorated early childcare center that is the cornerstone of what is known as the 1199 Child Care Fund. For Efua, being an 1199 member is a family affair. Both my parents were members. My brother, though, our last born, who is 18 right now, going on 19, he's in college, he is the one that attended the daycare. My mom enrolled him. So that's how I knew about the daycare, because I was the one who used to take him to school. So when it came to care for her own kids, putting them in Falk was an obvious choice. And Efua has been more than satisfied with the center, especially when it came to how the staff handled her now four-year-old son's early dramatic entrances. So my son started at the center back in 2019. So we started him at one year, six months. And the first two weeks, all the teachers knew about this, he threw up straight for two weeks. And (laughs) we were frustrated. I was frustrated. My husband was frustrated. Like, we were doing something wrong. Are we forcing this child to go to school when he wasn't ready? As soon as he sees the building, he would throw up. From from the elevator to class, he would start throwing up. As soon as he gets to class, he would throw up. So (laughs) it became a thing where the teachers would have buckets waiting for him. He did a two straight weeks. And two weeks, one day, it stopped he saw Miss Mary. He ran straight to Miss Mary. He forgot all about the throw up. Imagine. <laughs> Efua describes her son's experience at the center as organized, nurturing, and safe. I love the structure of the classrooms. They will provide you with a calendar for what they do for the month. They provide you with a meal plan schedule for meals. They're very attentive. I really loved even the, the lady in the kitchen. Whenever she sees us, she knew my son. He's a picky eater. You know, she knows him. So we had a relationship like that. It was a no-brainer that my daughter had to go to. That's another crucial reason Efua is satisfied with Falk. She's paying less than what the average New Yorker pays for early child care. does subsidize for what we are paying. My payment will be different from somebody who has two children and has a tier of, let's say, $50,000 to $60,000. Somebody whose salary is between $34,000 to $40,000 is paying less than what I'll be paying. The 1199 Child Care Fund offers members a sliding scale of subsidies based on income and family size. For example... A member with four children who makes $34,000 per year can get up to $3,380 in daycare reimbursements annually. I think it puts us who are the members, it puts our minds at ease, right? If our employer is partnered with 1199 who has this daycare and a child care fund to support us employees, we don't have to go shopping around for a lot of other places. We just, we know I don't want to say one-stop shop. It's just, it's, it directs us to use the facility if it's available to us. Efua's experience is an innovative and long-standing variation on how some U.S. workers are finding childcare through their jobs. In this case, it's her union rather than her employer which created this infrastructure. Employers contribute to the fund, and in turn, 1199 members have access to an array of benefits that serve kids ages 0 to 17. The number of employers who participate and how much they contribute to the fund varies based on the current collective bargaining agreement. Currently, about 500 institutions contribute a small percentage of their gross payroll to the fund. To be eligible for the fund, employees must be full-time 1199 members, and have passed their specific employer's probationary period criteria. 
About 50,000 1199 members are currently eligible for the fund. So, how did this partnership come to be? Carol Joyner is currently the director of the Labor Project at Family Values at Work. She was also the founding director of the 1199 Child Care Fund, which was officially established in 1992. I come out of a labor home. Both my parents were labor union members. My mother was fairly active in her union. So I kind of got that message, but I definitely got it indirectly that it shouldn't all be on families, that we are creating family structures that then benefit society, whether they are the workers of society or the thinkers or those who are rearing children in the future, you know? So I think that a lot of that stuck in my mind as I landed at 1199 and saw that the union was trying to do something very similar. They were trying to, through collective bargaining, create almost a cradle-to-grave benefit structure for workers at the union. The negotiations started during a difficult time for healthcare workers. The bankruptcy of New York could, could change the, the city Nobody knows for sure, but it could change it so dramatically as to have it not be recognizable again. Other buildings have been closed. This hospital has just shut down. More will follow. Fewer building projects and more closures mean less jobs. No politician wanted to make these cuts. The financiers ordered them. and some people sitting in protested the official order to close Saidam Hospital's emergency room at 8 this morning. It continued to operate, though far from its usual pace. This hospital belongs to the community. It does not belong to Mayor Koch, now Governor Kerry. It was the 80s, and there were tremendous health care shortages. Many, you know, hospitals and nursing homes could not get enough nurses. They couldn't get enough technical employees. They couldn't get enough of any type of health professional. And at the same time that that was happening, it was almost like, you know, a perfect storm. The city had also, particularly in New York City, they'd also cut back on services. As a result, hospital workers found themselves having to work overtime because of the healthcare shortages. So they needed people to be on tap more often than not. And there was nowhere for their kids to be. So that became a particular issue that our very political and progressive union brought to the leadership of the union. By the time contract negotiations rolled around, union members were desperate for help with childcare. In the survey that they presented, I believe it was like 1989, they asked, do we want to negotiate childcare that would cover the entire membership? And at the time, a minority of members, I want to say like 45% had children under 18. And something like 80% said yes. People who didn't even have young children anymore said, yeah, I think we should fight for this. And they did with a small, very small group of employers agreeing to come into the fund. However, uh, two or three years later, a much larger segment of the healthcare management system came in. 
We started out with what we thought was the most pressing need, which was, you know, birth to five. And so we immediately set up a system, which we call a voucher system, which is reimbursements for parents for childcare. They would be able to get reimbursement based on a sliding fee scale. And we pegged it to their salary and the balance was paid by the fund so that the relationship was between the provider and the parent because we thought it was really important for them to manage that relationship. What was most amazing about establishing the fund was that almost no one could talk about having done anything like that before. Carol remembers that some of the members weren't initially interested in the fund's offerings. Oftentimes, the fathers would come to registration with the package unopened and essentially just say, my wife sent me here. So we'd have to say, open the package, go through it. This is what you have to do. You have to read it. So it was a lot of coaching. But within a year or two of getting reimbursements and their kids going to summer camp, the fathers were on top of everything. So it just took a minute for them to realize that this was a real thing and their kids benefited tremendously from it. Carol doesn't remember receiving a lot of pushback on the road to that 80% yes vote she mentioned earlier. That vote was related to the solidarity that folks had and remembering how difficult it was to actually raise kids while working and why should someone else have to suffer from that. And not to put uh, corporations or the private sector on blast, the whole notion of, well, they had children, it's their responsibility, (laughs) it's not mine, you know, just didn't come up at 1199. And I don't think it would come up, you know, it's not, it's actually parenthetical to the idea of collective bargain and collective action. You know, this year is our 30th birthday. We were born from what we heard from the members. Rosie Dias is the current executive director for the 1199 SEIU Child Care Fund. Like EFUA, Rosie has a lifelong connection to 1199. My mom and my grandmother are both home care workers. So I know the value of what the members do. I know how hard the members work. And I know how important these types of benefits are to 1199 members. And in a vote of confidence in the 1199 Child Care Center FUA's kids also go to, Rosie has enrolled her own sons in Fel. So I have two little guys. <laughs> and I have a three-year-old and now five-year-old. And they've both been able to participate in our Future of America Learning Center. And you see it firsthand. It's different, you know? You see it. You see your kids growing and expanding. And, you know, I remember the first time my, my, my eldest, Lennox, Mommy, we have to make good choices. I didn't tell him that. He learned that from school. He, you know, talking about you have to make good choices. So things like that. The fund has had to pivot over the years, especially when it came to the pandemic a time when 1199 members were both essential and sometimes underprotected. Here's Carol Joyner again. The Family First Corona Response Act, they called it FICRA, the first bill that got passed in March of 2020. When the bill passed, they had carved out essential workers. They had carved out healthcare workers. We were clapping for them at night when they got off of work. So go to work, we'll applaud you, but if you get sick, 
you're not going to get paid sick time so that you can stay home and recover, or God forbid you expose someone in your house, you're not going to be able to take time off to care for them. That, that contradiction, to me, in essence, is America. In the absence of federal intervention, the 1199 Child Care Fund was able to offer $6 million in financial support to their members. That money came from a longstanding emergency relief fund. If a member, you know, has an extenuating circumstance, you know, fire or anything like that, you know, we've been able to provide them with emergency financial relief or emergency care. We call it for sure emergency care. So that's been an offering that we've had, but it's only been like every year, like average of three or four of those, right? Maybe if that. With the pandemic, we've offered this to, I think, over 12,000 members. So I went from three <laughs> to over 12,000 members that we were able to provide this for. And this is, you know, through a combination of child care funds, our child care corporation donations and grants that we received, et cetera. Some of our members, they expressed that they had issues finding anyone who'd be willing to take their child because they work at a healthcare setting and folks were scared, right? Having emergency financial relief kind of help, you know, neighbor or whoever else can watch their child while they go to work, et cetera. So they really had to piece that together. Similar to Corning, 1199 also invests in the surrounding community. Programming like FALC, the summer camps, and after-school programs are open to all NYC residents. Well, our members are part of that community. Those are our members' neighbors. Those are our members' family members. So it's like we're all interconnected. It's serving our members' community, where they live, where they socialize. This is our members' community. So it's, you know, the greater good. So how has the 1199 Child Care Fund been able to continuously collect money from employers to provide child care support to their members for over 30 years? Rosie thinks it's because there's a mutually beneficial outcome. You know, it's like a, a win-win situation, if you will. So this is really meeting a critical need. And, and let's be frank here, this overwhelmingly impacts women, right? Because women uh, a lot of times carry the load in in the families when it comes to, to child care and child rearing. So you can say that by and large, this, this allows women to remain active participants in the workforce. Right now, this sort of child care support just isn't available for most U.S. workers. In part, because only 14 million of us, or 10% of all workers, actually belong to a union. That's an all-time low, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. But at the same time, popular support for labor movements is at its highest level since 1965, with 71% of Americans telling Gallup they approve of unions. And some high-profile unionization efforts are increasingly capturing the media's attention, even if childcare hasn't always been a big focus of these conversations. Workers at Amazon's JFK 8 warehouse in Staten Island celebrating Friday after they overcame a multi-million dollar union-busting campaign and voted decisively in favor of joining the newly formed Amazon Labor Union, the first Amazon union in U.S. history. Google workers just announced they're forming a union with the Communication Workers of America. It's one of the first tech unions with both white-collar workers and contractors in the United States. This is a really big deal for the tech industry. Starbucks workers at Elmwood literally jumping for joy as they become the first Starbucks in the country to vote yes 
to a union. And Carol Joyner has some advice for those people seeking childcare support through unionizing. So I think people are trying to think out of the box. But right now, I do not see a tremendous amount of childcare negotiations happening. But I do, I, this is my third conversation about it in the last month. So maybe it's an omen that some, it's, the soon it's going to start. You just need a childcare committee. Find three other people at your place of work, whether it's a, a union shop or a non-union shop. Find three other people who want to try to think about childcare and think about what can happen. It doesn't have to come in the form of the 1199 Childcare Fund. It doesn't have to be that elaborate, but get started. Just begin the conversation because that's how we emerged, you know, from conversations with executive officers, I believe, and with union members about the importance of childcare. Corning, Bank of America, and the 1199 Healthcare Union are all examples of what workplaces can do when they dedicate time and resources to providing childcare for employees. And together, their decisions are affecting the lives of their hundreds of thousands of employees. People like Efua and Catherine and Sean Schley are better employees because they know their kids are safe, engaged, and happy. But the people we spoke to for this episode are the lucky ones, relatively speaking. Catherine, Sean, and Efua grabbed a corner of an inconsistent patchwork that is completely dependent on the company they work for or the union they belong to. What happens if they ever want to move on to a job that might offer more professional opportunities but fewer or no childcare benefits? I worry we're back to women taking on the bulk of caretaking and being forced into a situation where their parenting responsibilities will dictate and supersede their professional growth. Women's careers are suffering because of it. Systemic change won't come without systemic access. While Corning or B of A or 1199 can lead by example, they can only change things for their own workers. We asked Carol Joyner if she thought employer-sponsored funds like the ones she helped design were responsible for fixing the country's childcare crisis. No, I think that childcare is a public good and that we should treat it as such. We shouldn't have childcare just so people can go to work. We should have childcare because all the studies have shown that when kids are engaged in high quality childcare, they're more prepared for school. They're more prepared to succeed later in life. And we also know that, you know, women are the primary caregivers still. There's no secret about that. And if we were unclear, we just have to go back to the pandemic, right? How many women lost their jobs because they had to stay home or quit their jobs. And so given that, childcare also allows options for working people, whether they're women or other people, to have options in life. All of that strengthens our society. It is a public good. Where's My Village is produced, written, and reported by Alexis Hott. This episode is mixed and edited by Jessamine Molly and Justin D. Wright of Seaplane Armada. Our fact checker is Lushik Lotus Lee. Original music is by Bennett Pastor. 
special thanks to everyone we interviewed for this podcast. Megan Arnold is our executive producer. Where's My Village is a production of Fortune Media.